When Arnie said I'll be back, did he mean this many times? Answer me this, answer me this. Is spelling Genesis with a wire linguistic crime? Answer me this, answer me this. Helen and Ollie, answer me this. Sometimes we forget that this show has an international audience who may not be fully availed of all of the vernacular that we're deploying. But we don't forget that there's people listening who might not know what vernacular means. Anyone can look up vernacular. (laughs) For instance, we've had this email from Benji who says, Not being British, I was very lost in Answer Me This episode 317, Uh as I had no idea what a pasty was, (laughs) other than the bits of material strippers use to cover their nipples. Yeah, that's how it evolved, Benji. In England, strippers traditionally use lumps of pastry for that, and it just on. No, it wasn't until 1970 they were allowed a lunch break, so they just had to get it where they could. <laughs> Benji says, After performing research, I've determined that a pasty is basically a beef and turnip calzone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're pretty close, although it's made of pastry rather than dough. Uh, but yeah, it's a sealed pastry containing hot ingredients, Benji, uh, and all those listening who aren't sure what a pasty is. Uh, it's usually meat and veg. Sometimes cheese and onion. Sometimes cheese. It's British fast food, basically, isn't it? It's it's street food. It was an old working food because it was a single lunch object that uh, you could take to uh, your job and then eat it while you were still down the mineshaft or whatever and you didn't have to have cutlery or anything. Hello, Helen, Ollie and Martin. This is Chrissy calling from Telford. I'm actually calling on behalf of my husband who always has loads of random questions and never calls to answer me this. Um, This week, the question that's been troubling him more than usual is, why doesn't Noel Edmonds, beloved entertainer from Noel's house party and Deal or No Deal, have more Twitter followers? He's only got 4,000, which doesn't seem like a lot. It is an intriguing point uh, because, uh, you know, Noel Edmonds used to be one of the absolute biggest stars on British television. I mean, probably the biggest, along with Cilla Black. Also, you'd think loads of people would just follow him because they watched him 20 years ago. And the point is, he's still on Channel 4 every day. It's not like he's just a faded star. Deal or no deal, still going. So uh, I I was thinking, why, why is this the case? Why are people not keen to follow Noel Edmonds? He needs more laughs. See, Paul Daniels has quite a lot of funny tweets. Noel Edmonds, just a bit bland, isn't it? Well, it's also just got that edge of quackery that most of his Mm. modern-day pronouncements have. Mm. So, for example, you look at his biog on Twitter, Carmad Broadcaster. What? I mean, no point fishing for that job, mate. Chris Evans Mm. got it. Well, he could just get rid of car. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, Then, writer... And of what? You know, I mean, he may have written a book, but that's not what he's known for. He's very prolific post-it note lever. Health detective. What? Oh, no. A? Is that a TV show? Uh, no, I, I think that's relating to the book that he's written, uh-huh. um, which is, you know, some of this new age stuff that he's into, right. which is fair enough. But again, even if you were looking for someone who was a practitioner of that stuff, I'm not sure the phrase health detective means anything. I think he's invented it. Uh, and then positivity guru. Oh, no. Mm. Um, I mean, we did know about that. But again, I don't think that's what most people are thinking when they think Noel Edmonds. You know, they're thinking Noel's house party. They're thinking deal or no deal. They're thinking, here is one of the few broadcasters from Radio 1 in the 70s that apparently it's okay to still like. Do you think it is partly because the Noel Edmonds fan average age might be rather older than that of the average Twitter user? Yeah, partly that. And I think that partly explains as well why fellow entertainers from the 80s who were at their peak back then mm. uh, have not not actually as small numbers uh, as Noel. But I was looking, for example, Sally Jesse Raphael. But what was it she did? Uh, she was like Oprah, but white. Right. Um, she, she had big glasses, didn't she? She like had big, big glasses. red glasses. She talked sense to people that were going through emotional dilemmas was, uh, in the pre-Springer era. She was okay. like a brusca Ricky Lake. Yeah. 
Um, mm. Only 20,000 followers on Twitter. Really? Uh, Michael Barrymore, 31,000 at the time of recording. Mm. Wow. Again, you know, I mean, I know he's been through his troubles. You'd think that in a way that would make him more compelling on social yeah. media, but no, 31,000. How, how many has Tiffany got? What's the possible relation between Tiffany and Noel Edmonds? Well, I mean, she was like a one-hit wonder, wasn't she? And um, I got an affinity for her because she lived in Connect for a little while. But uh, I, I just think, like, someone who's had a sustained TV career should have a bigger follower than someone that really just had a couple okay. of songs. Okay, would you guess that she has more or less than Michael Barrymore? I'm going to guess fewer than Barrymore. It is fewer than Barrymore. About 25k? I'm going to guess 8,000. Uh, Martin's closer. Oh. It's 23,900. That's respectable. Mm. I think that's pretty good, actually. She's uh, doing an 80s cruise, apparently. Of course she at is. The moment. She's probably only in her early 40s, isn't she? she she's yeah. got... At least a couple more careers ahead. She's looking pretty good in the twit pic. Uh, I follow her. You don't have to show me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I see her pop up on my feed regularly. This is a game that Ollie and I sometimes play. We'll name a member of an expired boy band. And then play play your cards right, basically. Yeah, how many Twitter followers they have. It's a good game. It is a good game. Good but, game, good game. <laughs> but often quite sobering. Okay, Edward Furlong. Oh. Fewer or more than Tiffany? Fewer. Edward Furlong. Edward Furlong from Terminator, Terminator 2. 2. Yes. I, he must have 50 or 60,000 followers. Okay, so pick a number. 2,000. 55. Helen's closer. <laughs> what? 6,000. Oh. What? 6,000. And actually, his, his Twitter feed is a bit depressing. He's it's, not been well. No, it is oh, a lot of really? like, oh, I've got writer's block today. Oh, would you, would you like to see me talk about this? It's just all a bit desperate and needy and sad. Oh, that's a shame. You see, now, he's not doing anything wrong in terms of the biog. Says mm. very clearly what he's known for. Lifted from obscurity by JC to star along Arnold and Ed Norton. Mm. Now, thinking about it, he means James Cameron, but he's deliberately mm. employed an acronym there that could suggest Jesus Christ. Well, of course. What, what's your point? I think... It, it could be a word limit issue. It, yeah. it could be. I, I just think the phrasing, it just makes you think, oh, something's a bit weird here. I, don't, I think he's just trying to do a joke, but a lot of people are not good at jokes in 140 characters no exactly and it's often that isn't it if you do have a skill with jokes you'll get more followers i mean noel's mullet on twitter has 1200 followers and he doesn't even really have a mullet anymore no exactly i mean that is his hair from the 80s uh having a quarter as many followers as as the man himself hey it's pitt from bristol is juliet's balcony in italy actually juliet's balcony and did shakespeare even go because i don't actually believe that he was ever there oh pip you truther (laughs) (laughs) where is it I, I didn't Verona. Know. Okay. All right. So as in two gentlemen of, you know, yeah. the, the hints would suggest that Shakespeare had visited. Well, there we is... We don't know if Shakespeare was real, really. So, I mean, actually, oh you know, you, you go into a whole quagmire, don't you, when you start talking about... Yeah. They wrote all of Shakespeare's plays in the 70s using an algorithm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I heard that they were actually all written by Dave Grohl. I heard it was Gary Barlow. But anyway, uh, did Shakespeare ever go to Italy at all? Uh, there is no evidence saying that he did so he could have because the theatre companies that he was associated with some of them went on tours of Europe but they don't have evidence that he did however Italian culture and stuff was very fashionable in Britain at the time so there would have been a lot of sources from which to draw Mm. and that's where Romeo and Juliet comes from isn't it that's why other people wrote their version of that story because it was a popular Italian story yeah they were all nicking for the same source material weren't they I have been to Juliet's balcony on a school trip in 1992 is it on a residential building it's it's on a 13th or 14th century building okay however Uh the balcony was added in the 1930s bullshit so Mm. I think Juliet was standing on it pining for Romeo I think a lot of tourists went to Verona because they loved Romeo and Juliet and Verona had the same thought that King's Cross has had by putting in the platform nine and three quarters <laughs> trolley for people to pose yeah. by and they were like okay well Juliet was in the Capulet family 
There's a house that belonged to the Dal Capello family, which sounds a bit ah. like Capulets. They bought that house off them in 1905 and declared it to have been the Capulet family residence and uh, created a tourist sensation. And then they added lots of like gothic oldie looking bits to the building that weren't really genuine. I mean, if it was an American story, the Americans would actually have then an actress dressed up as Juliet that you could have your picture taken with. Well, they do have a statue of Juliet that is also 20th century. And the legend is that you get good luck if you touch her boobs. So one of her boobs is really shiny. One of her boobs is really shiny. Yeah. What yeah. What's wrong with the other one? one? Yeah. The other one is one? not lucky. <laughs> the other one means that all of your letters will go astray with tragic consequences uh, there's also Juliet's tomb but I think that was because he named a particular chapel where they were supposed to meet and that chapel does exist and it's very small so the number of tomb options is limited and the one that was big enough for someone to spoiler kill themselves on mm. is one so people go to that too but it's kind of meaningless and also really when Shakespeare was setting stories in Italy uh, I mean, there were two reasons he was doing it. One was because it was fashionable and because people liked Italy. And, and as yeah. you say, because the source material was Italian. And so that's why you end up with Two Gentlemen of Verona and Twelfth Night and Merchant of Venice and whatever. But the second reason, I think, is distancing the political realities of the comment he was making from Britain. So, you know, yeah. very often he's he's talking to a British audience about British society, but it's a parallel it's not a description. So they feel more comfortable. They completely understand that it's a comment on whatever it may be. Oh, was it like Catholicism and Protestant? Well, exactly. Romeo right. and Juliet can be any. Divided divide. society. Yeah. 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 The Merchant of Venice could be about anti-Semitism in Britain, couldn't it? But yeah. it's not. It's about Italy, so it's that little bit easier to digest, uh, yeah, isn't it? And he set plays in Scotland and Denmark as well. Yeah, but exactly. why, why set Hamlet in Denmark, though? It's not a particularly Danish piece. No, well, we now they know... They don't wear the jumpers. <laughs> we, we now know that it isn't, but that's the thing. To, to an English audience in 1600, I, I presume that Denmark was as exotic as setting a movie in space now. So it's mm. just escapism as well, isn't it? I guess also, uh, he's, he set six plays in Italy, and I wonder whether part of that was because there was this uh, rich theatrical tradition already in Italy mm. that was drawing on all the Commedia dell'arte and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. All of the above, I think. Uh, but that doesn't mean he ever went to a house and pointed up and said, right, I'm going to set a play here and it's going to be on this balcony and in the future tourists will pay to be here and touch her boob. And I think that's all right. I think it's fine that a lot of writers have not been to the places they're writing about. The world of pure imagination. <laughs> here is a question from Zed who says, I work in a costume hire shop. Today, a customer came in saying she wanted a Cinderella costume. I took her to the big fluffy gown section and she said, yes, these are good, but it needs to be blue. Uh-huh. Ollie, answer me this. Since when was Cinderella's dress blue? Please tell me that it was specified in the book that she had a blue dress. What, the, the book. book. <laughs> the Cinderella book. The one source. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll be forced to conclude that some film, <laughs> just some film, yeah. was made in which she was portrayed with a blue dress and all of a sudden everyone's imagination shut down. I actually haven't seen Disney's Cinderella. It is a well, gap well, in my it, Disney knowledge. You immediately leap to Disney. Um, <laughs> when there are so <laughs> many other this? classic Cinderella films. Even I know it is the film, it is the canonical depiction of Cinderella in the 20th century. It's not just any film, it's not just yeah. some film. Hmm. It is understandable that particularly little girls might want to emulate the Cinderella they've seen on screen. Yeah. Well, even in the Kenneth Branagh live-action film, they made the dress a huge, puffy, blue dress. Yes. However. However. Uh, if you actually look... At the original film, mm -hmm. her dress isn't blue. <gasps> uh, it is a kind of very light pastel shaded bluey white, uh, kind of like these trousers that I'm wearing. This kind of summer mm. shade. People can't people can't see that, but that's still blue. I know people can't see it. I'm saying it for your reference. <laughs> so sort of like an, an ice blue rather than a sky blue. When Disney released the DVD 
in the 1990s mm-hmm. of Cinderella for the first time. Of some time. film. Um, they looked at the cover art and remastered it because you remember when DVDs came out, it was all a case of buy all the same old films again because yeah. they've been digitally remastered. Mm. Yeah. So they redid the cover art on all of the uh, uh, boxes so that it looked like a new film. Did they make her wear cargo pants and skunk stripes <laughs> in her hair? Well, to make it look a little bit crisper, basically... They updated the cover art. She was wearing the white gown, the bluey white gown in the original Mm. artwork for the film. Mm. But then when the DVD came out, because there's this kind of magic pixie detritus all around her to indicate that the fairy godmother has waved a wand. Or she's got dandruff. uh, Or either, in the shape of stars. um, All down her dress. Uh, they decided that if you made the dress blue, then that would show up the stars yeah. a little bit more clearly. That, that yeah. does work. So that was the decision. And then the other thing that happened around the turn of the century uh, was At this... The turn of the 20th to 21st century. Correct. Right. Was the creation of the Disney princesses merchandising brand, um, which, you know, if, if you have daughters, you will know is quite a big deal. Uh, and essentially, that was a, a way of trying to revivify the corpses of Cinderella and Snow White by teaming them up with... <laughs> Snow White, they already revivified when <laughs> yeah. he knocked the apple out of her mouth. <laughs> by teaming them up in the same uh, branding family as yeah. uh, Jasmine and Ariel and the rest. I thought it was just a totally organic decision, not based <laughs> on marketing. Um, and when you look at the Disney princess family, in other words, if your little girl wants to collect all of the dolls, all of the outfits, all of the duvets or whatever it is, uh, they all have their own colours. So very clearly, uh, Belle from Beauty and the Beast is yellow, Jasmine is turquoise, and so on and so forth. And so, uh, yeah, it seems like Cinderella has become blue. She's the blue one in the Disney princess. So it's a very recent turn of events. Well, it's a combination of those things. But yes, it's it's all in the last 30 years. You watch the original film, it's, it's the only time she actually wears clearly blue. Uh, mm. is actually in the opening scene when she's in her nightdress. Oh, right. So it's not just that the blue of the gown has faded from the original print because blue pigment often fades before the other colours. No, not, ah. to, not, not, not as far as I can see. Uh, but, I, but in any case, it, bearing in mind that most people think, even if it's revisionism, that Cinderella in Disney Cinderella wears blue to the ball, I think it is explicable that people going to a costume hire shop people who can't be bothered to make their own costume or find a costume in a place that isn't called costume hire shop i think it is explicable that those people uh, would be requesting the blue they think cinderella wears in the film what's wrong with that well it's because also if they're going to a costume party as cinderella in a dress they bought they want people to know that it's cinderella and not just a dress that they're pretending is cinderella's dress yeah right then it'd be easier if they went to Cinderella at the beginning, wouldn't it? Where she was wearing rags and soot and stuff. Yeah, but again, I sort of understand why people might not want to be walking down the street catching the night bus effectively blacked up and wearing rags. Yeah, but <laughs> I think that would be more like uh, modern day living than a huge puffy crinoline. If you've got a question, then email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com 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 Here's a question from Alex who says When you hear a report on the news about someone's terrible traumatic experience... Uh, or if they're whistleblowing, they often say something on the news along the lines of, to protect this person's identity, their words are being read by an actor. But, Helen, answer me this. Do they ever actually use an actor, or is it just some poor intern dragged in and forced to read it out? 
because if it is an actual actor, they don't ever seem to be putting much effort into this, thus wasting their opportunity on national TV to get their talent noticed. Not necessarily the time or the place, <laughs> if they're playing a victim of a horrible crime, say. Yes. Plus, surely this is unnecessary added expense for the show. They may sometimes have an actor, but what I have definitely seen happen and heard happen is uh, the producer reading out stuff. So we used to be on a show on BBC Five Live where often the producer Ravi would be called upon to read in solemn tones uh, a witness statement or something like that. And I'd be like, ah, it's Ravi! Yeah. And Rather also, than listening. Definitely. And it's really funny when you recognise their voice. I've had this as well with uh, the managing director of Sky News who gave us both work experience circa 2001. Yes. Uh, he has quite a distinctive uh, northern accent. I've heard him voice President Ahmadinejad before, and that's a good laugh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, wow, is that him? Yeah, wow. Uh, not in every address, just sometimes. Um, but you know, Good job, Peter. <laughs> when you recognise the voices, it is amusing. But of course, the audience at home hopefully won't make the connection. It, it would be embarrassing if they were like, hold on. So, so the person who was in the earthquake in Hull last week is now the Prime Minister of Turkey. How did that happen? <laughs> Upwardly mobile society. I think also you don't want an actor to be using it like an audition piece and doing the full Olivier on news. No, although uh, of course they do actually sometimes use actors. They do is the answer hmm. because as Alex uh, suggests, when it's a traumatic experience, when it's a long form interview, not just 10 seconds of Francois Hollande saying we agree to this deal, uh-huh. but when it's actually going to be a 10 minute long interview on Panorama of someone talking about when they were abused as a child or something like that, uh, obviously you do want a professional actor there because you want it to sound like someone who is as sensitive and fragile as the real person being interviewed. You want to have an emotional connection with the audience. It is better to have an actor. The whole point of good acting in that scenario is that you don't notice they're acting. You would notice it if it was someone who wasn't a trained actor doing that voice for 10 minutes. You would notice it if, it, if that was the producer. And of course, occasionally you get examples, don't you? Jerry Adams was the famous one where uh, <laughs> someone gets employed regularly to be their voice on the news. Here is another question of behind the scenes at entertainment from Jennifer in Cheshire who says Ollie answer me this do people actually ever drink the drinks on daytime chat shows are you suggesting that they're spiked (laughs) (laughs) are you suggesting that Phil Vickery goes around wanking in the mall is that the problem (laughs) yeah even on channels he's not on (laughs) is there even tea in those mugs I thought, Ollie, as you had experience, you might be able to tell us. I do have experience Both of daytime television. backstage and on stage. Yes. <laughs> you just completely hyped up my role in the style of a Victorian ringmaster. Start of screen and screen. All I can say is, from recent personal experience, when you do Lorraine, yeah. uh, it is 8.30 in the morning when you're sitting there on set. So you don't want the triple vodka. So Exactly. Of course those mugs have tea and coffee in them. I mean, why wouldn't they? It's 8.30 in the morning. They yeah. want to give you a caffeine hit. Um, And they want a little thing with the name of the show on. Yes. So what happens actually is when you are in the green room, uh, the runner will come and ask you if you want a tea or coffee. It's on the house. It's on the house. Although (laughs) if you try and be nice about it, and as you know, sometimes I'm actually almost disarmingly trying to be really? nice really you know I'm like, I'm like oh I can look after myself like trying to be nice to it but then, <laughs> yeah, then like a rake hits you in the face or something <laughs> well exactly so I then go and queue at the coffee bar and then I get to the front and then they say yeah you're not production you can't get coffee so then I have to go back in the green room and ask a runner to bring you it have, to me you haven't got the lanyard when someone brings you the coffee that you want they bring it to you in a paper cup so that doesn't look very good on telly so what happens is as you get on set the floor manager decants your coffee that you're still carrying into a Lorraine mug oh god I hope it's pre-warmed even if you were a diva about that you'd be alright because of course the heat of the studio lights means it does stay hot ah. yeah. um, or, so or at least blood heat I actually was experimenting for a long time because I used to do the pay per view on Lorraine once a week they don't do it anymore uh, but when I was on it every week I was experimenting with whether it made me look relaxed or whether it made me look like I thought I owned the place 
if I was actually sipping from the coffee during the item. Yeah, and wearing your dressing gown. Yeah. Legs apart. <laughs> exactly. Because on the one hand, it does send out a signal that you're very comfortable, which is, you know, part of the skill of being on telly, obviously, is to look like you're not on edge. Uh, but equally, there's just something a bit like, it's her show. I'm sitting there with a mug with her name on it, drinking. Yeah. But also, just looks wrong. Whilst you're, whilst you're talking, rain. when you're going, well, this tragic news event... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly. And also, of course, you've only got about four minutes. So you don't really want to be taking even three seconds to take a sip. And presumably they use mugs rather than glasses because continuity, you want, you want the level of the liquid to be somewhat invisible. But also you do need the liquid there because uh, when you're on mic, the sound of your mouth gets amplified. And I hate this. I hate being able to hear it on uh, my own work and other people's. You know, that yes. when you're speaking, but I can't find a way to eliminate it on my own tracks. So you need to take regular sips of a drink just to minimise that. Yes, that's right. Although not if you're doing your own mixing desk, as I learnt to my cost at LBC, costing the organisation £3,000 last year when I managed to, at three in the morning, spill an entire pint of water all over the mixing desk. I am amazed that that doesn't happen more often in the middle mm. of the night. I think secretly it happens quite a lot, but they made it sound like it didn't happen very often. They should get you one of those hamster bottles and strap it to the mic stand. <laughs> well, the thing is, apparently in the old days, uh, if you spilt a glass of water over a radio mixing desk, obviously if it caught fire, that wouldn't be good. Uh, but if it didn't immediately break, then the water would just strip out the bottom and it would be okay. Oh, analog. Uh, analog. Mm. But now they've got these digital mixing desks that, of course, look like the old analog mixing desks yep. with faders and sliders. But actually, it's a computer in there. So, mm. of course, it's completely fucked yeah. as soon as you get any water on it at all. Balls. An example of how things have got worse. We've had this email about classic entertainment from Catherine from Glasgow, who says, I recently got a waterproof MP3 player to keep me amused while I go swimming. Naturally, I throw on a lot of old Answer Me This episodes, vintage ones. Oh, of course. It's, it's well known, isn't it, for motivating Naturally. people through exercise, isn't it, Aurelie? I'm surprised that MP3 players don't come with those preloaded. <laughs> uh, I was swimming along, listening to episode 20, feeling nostalgic at all the old jingles. When Occupation Interrogation came on. Wow. That is a deep cut. Blast from the past. Our, our, our long-running series of, I think, Two. three? It was a, a sketch, you could call it, a we, feature, no, you we could don't, call it. Don't tell them what it is, okay. because people who haven't heard the old episodes yet, they're available at answermethisdoor.com, you want them to have the surprise. Like when Martin got into a bath that he had laced with too much menthol. That kind of surprise. That is, you that think you know what you're getting. Yeah. Catherine says, Ollie, answer me this. Will it ever make a return? <laughs> I, I, I couldn't stop myself from laughing and choked on a load of pool water. It was that good. Yeah, something we haven't done for nearly 300 episodes is probably time to bring that back, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I think it's unlikely it'll make a return. But hey, TFI Fridays come back. You yes, never know. True. You never know. It might be when the 20th anniversary of Occupation Interrogation comes around. We'll all think that it was worth it just for the theme tune. I wonder whether it's a, a bit of a surprise for people who do buy those episodes when they hear... I think the show is pretty similar in format to when it began, but we do try experimenting in in the first few months, particularly just mm. throwing a lot of shit at the wall and seeing what leaves a mark. And we sound younger as well. Yeah, we sound notably younger. It's a bit like looking through your own family photo album if you're yeah. a regular fan of the show. It's a bit like looking at us as toddlers, like Muppet Babies. But yeah. me this. Also, in the, the early days, we used to have uh, every few months a day when we would get all of our musical and performing friends around and make them do jingles for us mm. and then also get them to do the other features that uh, are sadly no longer with us and uh, that hasn't happened for years and years yeah well, regular features mm. are a pain in the ass aren't they yeah I mean, that's that's why gavin osborne's not here every year doing a song well, with all also, our favorite questions it's because the first two years when he summarized uh, the years worth of answer me this oh, in a song brilliant. they are brilliant yeah. but first two years he lived in crystal palace 15 minute walk away then he moved to bath so not as convenient. Do you remember we had that feature where we'd um, pull together all of the Google hits we'd got on the blog? 
that people had found oh, onto yeah. me this. Oh, yeah, we did that quite well. There, there was a little tune that That's went a really it. good jingle for yeah, that. Yeah, the quick fire, quickle quiz. Remember that? Oh, oh yeah. So many. So many so misguided many. features. Yes. If you want to take an unaccompanied jaunt down memory lane with our old episodes, they are available at answermethisstore.com. And today's intermission is from episode 61. And I think you should be relieved that uh, what you're about to hear did not become a regular feature in the show. a new hot young questionnaire. Oh, yes. Warwick, who is 14 and from Enniskillen. Is that in Northern Ireland? Could be. Hello, Warwick. That's my accent. <laughs> oh, good God. Oh, my God. Let's, let's say other places Warwick might be from. Warwick is uh, from... Warwick? Uh, Hello, Warwick. Warwick, Warwick, is, Warwick is from uh, Aberdeen, Ollie. Hello. Huh? <laughs> That's pretty good. Warwick is, uh, is from Southern France. Bonjour, Rick. <laughs> I can play this all day, Helen. I'll always have the upper hand. Oh, of course. Warwick is from Japan. Oh, I can't do it. Here's a question from Pete in Southampton who says There is a pub in Winchester, the Royal Oak, which claims to be the oldest pub in Britain. There is another in Nottingham, ye old trip to Jerusalem, which claims the same thing. Yeah, they only sell kosher wine there. And there is yet another in St Albans, ye old fighting cocks, which is recognised by Guinness as the real oldest pub, but that is disputed by many people. It's also been in the news recently due to a campaign to rechristen it ye oldie clever cocks to reflect compassion for animals. There are seemingly lots of other pubs around the country which claim to be the oldest pub, but surely it would be a simple thing to identify which is really the oldest pub. Oh, surely. So, Ollie, answer me this simple thing. Yeah. <laughs> Which pub is really the oldest pub in Britain? Well, guess what? It isn't simple. You can't. So, there. Yeah. Drink that. There isn't the history of a public house. It's just a, a house where people drank it. Well, the issue is, and I refer you to the BuzzFeed article, 11 pubs that might be the oldest in the UK. 11! Um, it isn't a simple thing to date them, because it could be that you're dating it from the moment it became a pub as we know it now... It could be that you're dating it from the moment it became a brewery. Mm. It could be that you're dating it from the moment that a pub stood on the site where it literally is now or a pub with the name that that one has now. Uh, there are so many things that it could be. It might have been a hostelry before. Yeah, or coffee house it or something like that. It might have been a private drinking establishment. How do you possibly date it? I'm afraid, actually, that I am going to go with the Guinness one, which is ye old fighting cocks. Uh, because they've Funny done, name. They've, <laughs> they've done more research than anyone else mm. and they've applied the criteria that they have. It was founded in 800. Wow. Um, uh, but it's only had that name since 1872. Mm-hmm. And it's only been on that location since 1539. So it's still not actually that old when you think that, you know, Brits like to drink and have done for centuries. So when you say it was founded in 800, does that mean, what, there was just a barrow there or something? Yeah, it means a, a pub which later became the old fighting cocks was on a similar site in St Albans since 800. But I think the licensing laws came in fairly late, didn't they? And, and the pub was just, I'm going to let people drink in my living room, but I won't brew the beer myself, I'll get someone else to brew the beer. Yes. So the living room thing is interesting because that's where the Jerusalem one that he mentions in Nottingham uh-huh. comes in. The old trip to Jerusalem. That's a very cumbersome name for a pub. It is. It's... Um, in the foundations of the castle, or what used to be the castle. Mm. It's like when people have bars in their basement now. Yes, exactly. Wow. <laughs> if you include private establishments before they became public-facing pubs, then that's the argument for that one, because uh, when they actually did an excavation into the foundations of the castle there in the 1970s, there were suggestions that the caves below the pub had belonged to the castle's brew house in the 12th century. Right. Um, so theoretically, drinking has been happening exactly in that site, since the 12th century 
but it was private and probably drinking. before and probably before because people like to drink <laughs> yeah um but it was private drinking it wasn't public drinking so mm. you know does that count or also, not also went a lot of monasteries didn't they have like oh they love know, it distilleries and yeah, stuff like that absolutely yeah I, I heard this theory that um uh, alcohol co-evolved with human beings because uh, the fermentation process made things easy to digest so there's an argument that bread co-evolved with human beings but there's also an argument that alcohol mm. was actually the real thing that that, that followed humankind through its process of civilization. So actually, like the first pubs are probably like ten thousand years old, but you wouldn't—they don't have a, a license, and they're, they're not a Weatherspoons now. Yeah, and also, I mean, drinking has always been actually associated with the church, hasn't it, to some extent? Because yeah. you, you have celebrations, and then mm. also you uh, free communion wine, free communion wine. So actually, you could say every church in Britain is an older pub than the pubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can I just say as well to anybody who's already sharpening their pencils to write us an email about uh, ye? in these things being pronounced the I know but I just said ye because you all know what we're talking about I didn't know when the printing presses came and they got rid of the old English letter th uh, they they replaced it with y and so the ye is actually supposed to be pronounced the and the oldie with an e that was just to justify the sentence rather than to be pronounced oldie okay but those people and I'm glad you addressed them directly because they're your people those people are pedants (laughs) aren't they yes because because as we often debate when it comes to anything linguistic in these in this way Surely most people seeing that sign in St Albans now would say ye old fighting cock, so that yeah. is what it's called. Yeah, ye It's oldie. not called the oldie, it's called ye oldie. Um, I think my favourite of all the old pubs that are vying oldie. for the title, <laughs> all the oldie pubs, <laughs> uh, is probably the Skirid Mountain Inn in uh, Abergavenny. Skirid. Oh. Um, because their first floor was once used as a courtroom with hangings carried out from an oak beam above the staircase, Ooh. and they still have a noose. Mm. Do they have they a, still have a noose on the beam. They should have a piñata on it, though. <laughs> if you go to the prospect of it being whopping, they've still got a noose outside the pub. Do they? Yeah. You what can, the you... fuck is wrong with these I people? Know, Alcohol right. is a depressant. <laughs> Why on earth would you celebrate the history of the establishment that used to hang people? I mean, it just has to go wrong once, doesn't it? Mm. One stag party has to go wrong once, and that's on your oh, conscience God. forever. Hey, look at me. I'm a 15th century dead man. Well... <laughs> <laughs> Why are all Yao's fan sites just about one thing? The only way is up is not the only song she sings. What about Abandon Me? One true woman, all good thing going. Her single from 96. You should make your own Yaz site to fill in the gaps. Since you seem to think all the current Yaz sites are crap. Go to squarespace.com, build your Yaz site and put Yaz back on the map. The only way is up. Thank you, Squarespace, for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. Very good of you. And thank you also for making it so easy to design websites. I've been using it for the allusionist.org, and uh, it's a real piece of piss. It is. And, and also, <laughs> it's a, it's very, I'm sure that's their slogan. Yep. Squarespace. It's, it's a, a piece, piece of, of piss. piss. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, sure. That's a compliment, Squarespace, in case that didn't translate yeah, to no. American ears. I, I can't imagine Ira Glass saying it, but I, I imagine on this that's, show... That's why we're better. Exactly. <laughs> the VW handles like a piece of piss. No, but it's very easy. You make changes to the website without having to use complicated forms and they show up instantly on your screen yes. drag and drop point and click well you just you just change the text on the front of the website oh my no god no messing around good. with html and also very easy to embed things which is often a problem with uh, other website things that i have used and sell digital products as well so if you mm. want to sell digital audio for example maybe you're not so keen on this whole apple music idea uh, then do what we've done answer me this store.com you see how we sell our digital files that's all done through squarespace they host it for you and then you, you can sell stuff through their templates as well it's a real dream it is and, and remember you get 10 yes. percent off if you join squarespace for a year by using our code answer, answer. here's 
is a question from Alison, who says, we've just bought our four-year-old daughter a nifty Bluetooth speaker. She's constantly repeating Bluetooth enabled and forms it into songs, which is getting a touch annoying. Well, then don't buy a four-year-old a Bluetooth speaker. Too late. Pandora's box is open. Oh. She knows the phrase Bluetooth enabled and she is sticking with it. <laughs> She's taking it quite literally. So she checks the mirror to see if her teeth really are blue, like the lady in the speaker says. Oh. Lady in the speaker, sinister. <laughs> so Ollie answer me this. Where does Bluetooth come from? Sweden. Oh. Created by Ericsson in 1994. Ericsson. As in the phone company, not Sven Joran. My, my, my first mobile phone was an Ericsson. Was it? Yeah. Uh, oh, you've got me thinking now. Was mine a, an Ericsson or a Nokia? I think my, no, mine was Nokia. I had the banana phone from the Matrix. That was my first one. Wow. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Pretty cool. I had a very large Motorola. But mine, you press right, the side. No need to it... boast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my one didn't have the thing where you press the sides and the, the thing slid down like Keanu's one. Uh, my one, you had to manually pull it down. Oh, oh how you oh, suffered. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> did it have a little bit of string on the bottom to tug like a bathroom light fitting? Yeah, it, was a cool, it was a cool first phone. Uh, anyway, yeah, Ericsson developed this technology in 1994. But weirdly, and, and in, a, in a sense, I think in a very Swedish way, mm-hmm. uh, they decided not to own this technology. They formed right. a special Whoops. interest group. Yeah, I know. Wow. Still be in massive profit if they had. Uh, they formed a special interest group with Intel, Nokia, Toshiba, and IBM. So no one owned the company. No one owned the technology. Uh, and it's as a result of that open sourceness that it took off as the wow. platform that everyone wanted to use. And so the name Bluetooth uh, comes from an allusion to that openness as well, uh, because it comes from the 10th century Danish king Harald Blattand, uh, which translates to Harold Bluetooth in English, <laughs> wonderfully. Um, and King Blattand was known for uniting warring factions oh. across Scandinavia. So there you go. So it's it's equivalent in open source IBM versus Nokia versus Ericsson ways. It's similar to uniting Norway, Sweden and Denmark in warfare. I love how oh. something as boring as Bluetooth has, <laughs> has thousand-year-old Scandinavian origins. And you know why his nickname was Bluetooth? I don't. He was a big fan of eating blueberries and his teeth got stained blue. Down and lonely Life is so confusing I need some answers Preferably amusing Now I find A podcast that will suit I listen to Helen and Ollie On my half hour commute Time for a question from Matt in Lincolnshire, uh, who says, I'm very happy to say that I've met the love of my life. Congrats. uh, And we have three gorgeous children together. Having run out of bedrooms in our house, we've had to draw the line there. I don't want to have to go to Ikea to buy another bed. (laughs) So, says Matt, last August, off I popped to my GP to be snipped. I spent an uncomfortable 45 minutes flat on my back having my balls fiddled with. I'd always thought that once the tube was snipped... That would be that. No sperm were getting through. And away I went to get my end away. Probably made a big weekend out of it. Right, vasectomy on the Saturday morning whilst the kids were with the grandparents. Let's go for it. But no, says Matt. I had to wait four months, ensuring regular servicing of my member throughout. Yep. And then provide two samples a month apart 
to make sure the job was done. Yep. I didn't know you had to do that when you have a vasectomy. Well, I suppose you haven't had one, have you? I guess, but they do make it seem, and by they, I mean people I know who have had one, and also uh, depictions on neighbours. Yeah. They do seem to make it seem like it's a straightforward process. How surprising that people you know who've had them done and depictions on neighbours don't go into medical detail. (laughs) They just make jokes about how much they hurt. Yeah, but I wasn't expecting this, though. Matt says, I've now been through this rigmarole three times... He's had his balls fiddled with three times and had to go through a load of wanking in a jar for a month. The love three of your times. life has given birth three times. Stop complaining. Wait, no, no. He, no, come on. Just because he, he's not saying it's as bad as that, Helen. I think he's implying No, no, it. no. This isn't a feminist issue. You're allowed oh, to feel sympathetic with a man for having painful balls and three times. being humiliated. Oh, just I have to wank twice birth. a month. Oh. You can't. You win, women win every argument if the answer is well, it's not as bad as giving birth. We it know isn't. that. Helen. It isn't. I know. Although my mum said having gallstones was worse. So she won her own argument. And that's something men can suffer from as well. So that's, that's true. Uh, yeah. People tell Try me. Try having gallstones, Matt, once a month. Having a dislocated shoulder can be as bad as giving birth. And I've had that three times. Yeah, yeah. try doing that in your balls. Anyway, says Matt, I've been through this rigmarole three times. And yet now I have a further appointment for a more detailed analysis, including the production of a sample on site, i.e., a wank in a storage cupboard. So 10 months down the line, it would seem my balls are working perfectly and my discomfort was for nothing. Well, it doesn't necessarily seem that way, Matt. It seems like they're checking. True, but I mean, if if the ratio continues as it has been, you know, if it seems like his balls are resistant to all vasectomy uh, interferences, then it has been uh, for naught. Well, he doesn't know yet because he's got a further appointment. But yeah, he hasn't no, had it in yet. In the law of probability, we're preparing him psychologically for this eventuality. If he's I think that's reasonable. one of the one in 2,000 whose vasectomies don't work. Is that all it is? Yeah. Okay, good. Well, he says, Helen, answer me this. Where are all these sperms still coming from? Your balls. Your balls. Your balls are still making as many sperms as they were before. It's just now they're not going in the same direction. Mm. Uh, they get redigested, I think. Sperm that aren't used. A lot of them build up in the epididymis. The 16-foot-long, tightly-coiled tube behind each testicle where sperms learn to swim. So, okay, anecdotally, and and by that I do mean personal experience, uh, I know that the longer it's been between sessions, either administered uh, by someone else or by myself, Mm -hmm. uh, there is a uh, larger discharge. Yeah, Um, but that's seminal fluid, which is not quite the same thing. Sure. If it's, it's been a month, do you ejaculate like a horse? Well, you're supposed to ejaculate quite regularly, like he's saying. He is ensuring regular servicing of his member throughout, he specifies. Yeah. Because it takes up to four months, but I think averagely a couple of months or 15 to 25 ejaculations to ensure that uh, your tubes after the site of the (laughs) snip are free of sperms so you're not likely to get someone pregnant. So they have to keep checking his sperms and it's good that he's going for the appointments because apparently a lot of men don't get it checked and that's why the vasectomies fail. They check that um, he's cleared all the sperms out from lower than where they snipped his vas deferens off and also that the scar tissue is formed thus stopping the sperms from continuing to go out of his penis towards an egg. You just need to check that there isn't any sperm in your seminal fluid. Okay, but when you say you need to check, he, the medical they, the medical, I don't, I don't need to, to. You don't need to, Wally. Sure. But Matt can't self-check that. Could you not look at it under a microscope? Probably he could. Probably there's an innovations catalogue product that does just this. I think it's the kind of thing where just if you didn't know what you were looking for, you could easily be misled by <laughs> what you saw under a microscope. And also you'd have to ejaculate on that tiny bit of glass. Yes, you'd, and... I think the point at which you've just wanked onto a microscope, afterwards you'd probably be feeling enough shame that, that science would go out the window. Yeah, um, I've had worse. Matt says, even if the vasectomy had all gone to plan, why would it take four months to work? Oh. Uh, and he admits uh, these are questions 
I should have probably asked my general practitioner at the time. Yes, like all the medical questions we get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, actually, when you're with not just a GP, but actually a surgeon, any medical mm. professional, but sometimes... I'm fine. Yeah, you, well, you're prepared to be guided by them. And also, I think, particularly as an Englishman, you're less likely to question it. You yeah. feel like you're being rude by asking questions sometimes. Yeah. Even when I've gone to private health practitioners and they create the impression because you're paying a lot that they're giving you all the time in the world, you still feel like you're taking up the time of an, an intelligent person and they'll tell you anything you need yeah, to know. Some people are really ill. Exactly. You're, you're getting in the way. But that's ridiculous because yeah. everyone should ask these questions because then you go home and you think, oh, my vasectomy hasn't worked. Why is that? Do you think that uh, a lot of people agree to have the vasectomy before they really know about the full process? They or their partner has decided that that is what is going to happen to them. Mm. And so they don't necessarily know that there's like a four month healing period in which you have to use other forms of contraception. I think that's probably right. Yeah, I mean, I've I mean, I've I suppose distantly in the back of my mind, I've considered that one day I might get a vasectomy. Just something to do. Uh, But now I'm not convinced because of this. I mean, I, I, I'm not someone who objects that much to using barrier contraceptives, but if I was, I'd still probably hear this and think, mm, not sure. My friend um, Julie, who is uh, the third child of five, uh, said that her dad went to have one and uh, he was chatting to a guy in the waiting room who was like, oh, it's your first time. He's like, of course it's my first time. He's like, not mine. <laughs> He's had yeah, several before. And so Julie's dad didn't have one and had two more children. Oh, because he was put off by that yeah. statement. Yeah, like, what's the point if it's not going to work? What's the point if it's not going to work? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's time to snip off this show now, but uh, there will be one in two weeks' time. And your questions are our sperm. Uh, to send them up our uh, urethra, <laughs> you can email, call or uh, Skype them. All the details are on our website. Answermethispodcast.com And also in the intervening two weeks, don't forget to check out our other work. Ollie is on LBC every weekend. Every Friday and Saturday night till 10. And also on the media podcast. And the Tech Weekly podcast from The Guardian. And I make The Allusionist, which I think you'll like, listeners, so uh, give it a go. Yeah, it's about words and stuff. If you like Helen talking about words, you'll probably like that. Yeah. And you can listen to The Sound of the Ladies podcast, The Global Lab and Brain Train, which is a bit out of date, but we'll be having new episodes over the summer if you'd like to. There's a promise. I think you'll find that is quite a lot to be getting on with for the next fortnight. Yes. Just remains for us say thank you very much to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. Yes, thank you. And thank you for listening. Bye! Bye.